0: professional identity start with the letter A, so actor, artist, academic, anthropologist, and then lately, which is what this paper is mainly going to be about, athlete. Um, so, so there was that question, and then the, se- the second thing I was re- reflecting on was when I was invited to do this um, talk, I was first of all put into um, the panel of bodies and then through a series of um, many emails was shunted into histories, and then finally things. And I think so, just to note that the, the talk is going to encompass all of those those sorts of things. So it's in, it comes out of a project that I'm currently on at the moment. Um, it's a two-year HRC Leadership Fellows Project called Dynamic Tensions, New Masculinities in the Performance of Fitness. Um, in it, I look back to the history of fitness culture, or Physical culture, as it was called then, on the theater stage. And I use this overlooked archive to theorize the relationship of men's fitness to gender construction in the present. Um, and I use three strands in my methodology archival research, ethnography, and practices research in and through performance. So, um, in thinking about difficult feelings, I'm principally going to be talking about ethnography and the feelings that are provoked by the encounter with the practice of fitness and the specific um, theme of this session which it's, is things. Um, my field work has taken place in gyms in London, Glasgow and Austin, Texas and is primarily an autoethnographic exploration of my my athletic life as an amateur Olympic weightlifter. Um, I've been involved with Olympic weightlifting since stepping into the indoor athletic center at Brunel University London in 2014 More days than not, I carry this backpack with me, which is filled with uh, things. So there's a protein shaker, um, weightlifting straps, more of which later. Uh, Weightlifting, so this is my training notebook, uh, wrist wraps, uh, chalk, And then the things to wear, so tights, t-shirt, knee sleeves, uh, and finally weightlifting shoes. So that ensemble of things um, is carried to a place that looks much like this, um, uh, to a place where there's another set of objects, barbell, plates, and platform. So in this presentation, I want to explore the affects and intensities prompted by the encounter of my body with this equipment. Um, The presentation will take two parts. So in the first part, I explain why these feelings might be considered difficult, um, and I'll use the example of these uh, lifting straps to demonstrate something around how an object might become a marker of identity because these probably look fairly unfamiliar to, to most people, but um, so I'll explain more about that in a second. Um, in the second part of the presentation, I'm going to be drawing on an in-progress chapter of my current monograph to explore how feeling with these objects might enable new insight around men's bodies, labor, and strength. And I'll consider the role of objects and strength performances in the Victorian and Edwardian popular theater, and their changing ambiguous status. And then finally, I'm going to put this archival research into dialogue with the status of things in contemporary strength sports. So part one is called Difficult Things. In her article, Dances with Things, Robin Bernstein proposes the concept of a scriptive thing. A scriptive thing, she writes, quote, like a play script, broadly structures a performance while simultaneously allowing for resistance and unleashing original live variations that may not be individually predictable, end quote. Her focus is the way in which agency, intention, and racial, racial subjectivation co-emerge through everyday physical encounters with the material world. Things, script behavior, either through determined actions, such as the sequential pagination of a children's book, Or prompted actions, such as a racialized doll that is made of a specific form of rubber that scripts broadly violent play. So that's the kind of theoretical concept I'm working with. It's useful, I think, in understanding the things of fitness culture, as they do not script behaviors in precisely the same way. So some things are already understood as part of a network of what Heidegger calls das Zeug, or equipment, i.e. those ready-to-hand things whose function, use, and action is immediately apparent. So those would be the things that fit into um, a costume and clothing. So, you, you know, it looks slightly different, but you probably know how to use it. Weightlifting shoes have this slight heel on them, but there's nothing is fundamentally changing about them. So we basically know how to interact with a shoe without necessarily needing to figure out, like, what is this thing? And so, so that's already uh, a kind of ready-to-hand object. Other things, though, um, such as fitness machines, uh, script behavior through determined actions. A bodybuilding machine, um, this uh, incline chest press machine, for example, might feel unfamiliar at first, but once your body encounters the machine, measures itself against it, you get a feel for the movement, you see where the joints are, there's only one way in which the action can actually go. Um, But there's a third uh, category of things, which are the things that I mainly deal with, uh, which are the things of strength sports. Let's see if this... Oh, I think this might just be a picture, actually. I thought it was a video, (laughs) I guess it's not. Um, So barbells, barbells and plates. Um, These prompt actions in an unclear, ambiguous way. The purpose and nature of these things, their weight and mass, also resists the action that you are trying to accomplish. So a barbell loaded with 100 kilos prompts numerous actions, clean and jerk, deadlift, back squat, front squat, but only through the acquisition of a technique um, or embodied knowledge. So as much as I would love to have brought the barbell in today, um, I can't. So I'm going to illustrate this thing being through the example of lifting straps. So lifting straps are just basically made from seatbelt material, um, which are sewn together at the side. And this is a particular type of them that uh, uh, mainly Olympic weightlifters use. Um, they're, the first time you do it, it makes no sense. So they, they basically loop around the bar in order to um, in order to facilitate your grip, so you don't have to worry about your grip when you're lifting a very heavy thing. And that action, you have to do one-handed around the bar. So they loop around the bar like so, your thumb goes underneath in a hook grip, and then you hold the you hold the bar. Um, that action takes a very, very long time to get because there's nothing in particular about this that prompts that sort of afford... There's no affordance with the human body that prompts that action. So you have to learn it. You have to... Learn it through a series of techniques, um, through practice, through discipline, and that identity that you develop through those techniques must be constantly trained and negotiated. And I think that that uh, that, uh, constant repetitive uh, training prompts those difficult feelings for me. So my performance of an action, a snatch or clean jerk, deadlift, my performance of an action with a barbell or straps is a marker of my belonging to a group or identity. Um, and in my first two years of training, as I began to master that technique of the snatch or clean and jerk, I felt a kind of anxiety that I would lose it. Um, I would feel anxious that I would lose strength even as I grew stronger. So my love for training, my, my desire, my, um, my obsession with it was therefore accompanied by a kind of strange... Uh, worry and anxiousness, I had to train or else I wouldn't be able to train. And there were other difficult feelings because uh, my mastery of technique prompted quite ugly feelings of hierarchy over the others who had less mastery, and in some cases it was just that feeling of strength. I became that guy in the gym. I wanted to correct people all the time. Um, (laughs) And this—it's a particularly masculinous attitude that I feel deeply uncomfortable with. And it's interesting how that can transmit onto other bodies. So, um, so my friend uh, Georgina, who's uh, who's a woman and a very good weightlifter, she um, she said to me the other day that she she was just watching other people training and going like, S- you know, since I took this uh, weightlifting course, I want to mansplain all the time. And that was her 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 you know her feeling um, that was prompted by her technique and so uh, I also feel proprietorial about my things, my my bar, my plates, can can I share my bar, can I share my bar? No. (laughs) 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 And then I think there are the difficult feelings that are prompted by the way my practice pulls me away from what is supposed to be real life and specifically work so there's questions around um, the feelings around labor so I train over eight hours a week and most weeks 10 and there's something quite furtive about sneaking off um, after teaching to go lift things with student athletes or showing up to staff meetings and theater outings with the sweat drenched gear in my bag not showered etc. So in summary, difficult feelings are prompted by the fact that my network of things or equipment represents a kind of mastery over both technique and the material world. And this sense of mastery, I want to suggest in the next section, might be used to think about the development of masculinities in the 20th century, um, which I'll now explore through um, popular performance. So bars, plates, straps, all of these things... Um, have a history in sport, but mainly in theater, in strongman performance. So in conventional historiographies of physical culture, it's often assumed that strength performances led directly into contemporary fitness. But what I want to do is compare how objects were used, appropriated, and misused in strongman in the late 19th and early 20th century, um, and compare that to the feelings prompted by strength, strength sports in the present day. Um, My argument is that a shift from strongman as a spectacle of mastery to strength sports as participatory practice for the circulation of affect says something quite important about the complexity of masculinity as a construction. By staging an economy in which things feel difficult to master, which is to say, things feel difficult to transform, produce, or exchange in the commodity form, uh, modern strongman performs a kind of post industrial anxiety over masculinity and labor. So in the 19th century, strength acts mainly appeared in three places, the circus, the dime Museum, and the North American vaudeville theater and its British equivalent, the Music Hall. And all three of these sites are popular performance sites. So the defining characteristics of popular performance um, involve, according to Ollie Double, a direct connection between the performer and the audience, um, a sense of skill and novelty, and it, uh, rooting in the present moment, and finally, an interlacing of performer and role. So what popular performance isn't, according to Double, is narrative-driven drama. So rather than story, what the primary driver um, of strongman performance was is the feat. Um, a feat of strength um, was basically what people came to see. So according to the strongman Harold Ansorge, the difficulty of a feat does not necessarily prove it good for stage work. A feat must have flash and action to draw the attention of the audience. Um, So already we see a kind of economy of attention uh, that makes this feat resemble stunts, which is a related category of performative acts that similarly balance a sense of risk, attention, and economy. Kristen Smith Argues that stunts embody concerns about the financialization of the economy in the 19th century, and specifically around speculation, risk, and what Marx calls fictitious capital. Uh, stunts were often performed to drum up interest in a corporation or a product, um, and they therefore express both the act as well as the advertising. Um, a stunt generates uh, value for the company which it is intended to garner attention, but As well, it generates value for the performer who through the performance of labor in the present is therefore able to bet on future work. Um, So the speculation is therefore accompanied by considerable risk. So Kirsten Smith's example is a stunt in which a performer was electrocuted and died while riding his bicycle across a live wire. Um, And she argues that stunts embody a fantasy about financial capitalism That, quote, precarity could be invited, yet at the same time entirely negated through the skill of an individual body, end quote. So the strongman feat functions in a similar way. They generate value for theater owners who could boast of the best bill in town, and they increase the possibility of future employment for strongmen who literally had to circulate Um, through a circuit of theaters. The normal engagement in a theater was only one week, and there was rarely any permanence to this work. So by the early 20th century, what we see is an intensification of novelty. Um, So mainly I'm working from a collection of um, vaudeville reviews held at the Billy Rose Theater Division at Lincoln Center. Um, In it, there's over 30 individual strongman acts between 1908 to 1919. Um, And the descriptions demonstrate how attention was generated by the strongman. So weightlifting, a simple feat of weightlifting, had to unfold in stages. So firstly, the apparatus, a dumbbell for example, (coughs) would be brought onto the stage by three stagehands. Then uh, the strongman would juggle the dumbbell, raise and lower it, place it on an end of his springboard, jump on the other end of the board and catch the weight as it was hurled through the air. So that's a description from a review. Uh, Finally, says the reviewer, hanging by his knees from a trapeze, the strong man held this dumbbell with his teeth. Uh, End quote. So the escalation of the act masks the initial misdirection. The stagehands through their business invest the dumbbell with much more weight than it actually has. Um, another prominent feat of strength was the misuse of other objects, such as army and navy equipment, um, especially in the um, around the time of the First World War. So, juggling cannons, carriages, anchors, um, as well as everyday uh, objects in everyday life. Um, the other prominent part of strongman performance was feats with living weight, um, which were other people. Um, and so the living weights were practical on the circuit as, um, because the use of audience members was not preferable to carrying around several hundred pounds of weight for a feat. Um, but they also mitigated against claims of fakery. Uh, so in a letter to the circus strongman and physical culturist, uh, Otley Coulter, uh, George Jowett wrote, quote, when in New York, I was told to do away as much as possible with weights as the public were fed up on them through so many fakes, and they liked novelty the best. End quote. Um, but George Jowett's tolerance for novelty and veracity stopped at this, the Tomb of Hercules, a well known feat in which the strong man would brace a board across their thighs, abdomen, and chest in a bridge position while supporting stupendous amounts of weight, using other people, animals, or automobiles. Um, responding to Ollie Colzer's suggestion to include this feat in their act, George Jowett wrote, quote, I never figure on killing myself. Uh, so there is a real risk and danger involved in Victorian and New strongman performance. And this risk contributed to a kind of mythologiz- mythologization of the strongman. The stories of successful feats of strength enabled the theater managers to speculate on their ability to draw in crowds, though the promotional materials can rarely be counted on as evidence." Um, So that's the history of of these things in strongman performance. Um, Now what exactly are we looking at when we look at the thing? Um, uh, Objects in strongman performance are not really props. Um, Andrew Sofer notes that props are objects that are in some way moved, transformed, or manipulated by actors. Um, but mainly he's talking here about actors in a fiction, in a narrative. Barbells, chains, and bars, uh, the nature of those objects is to resist incorporation into a fiction. To a turn-of-the-century audience hungry for novelty, the value of the strongman feat rested on its ability to seem real, meaning that the best acts would resist the theater machine's ability to, quote, ingest the world of objects and signs only to bring images to life, end quote. Um, So the objects of strongman feats do not pretend to be anything other than they are, unlike Peter Hanke's famous, in the theater, a chair is a chair pretending to be another chair. Um, In many cases, uh, a barbell, for example, reasserts its essential nature by being misused. Um, So one example is... um, a turn by W.S. Harvey um, from 1915, which was a 14-minute act staged in interior set, um, a bedchamber. Um, the furniture initially appears part of a dramatic illusion which is then vitiated by uh, W.S. Harvey's feats. So he balances, according to the review, he puts on his chin all the furniture in the room until he finishes up with the full-size brass bed. So upon being misused, by the strong man, the furniture reasserts its own will, it objects to its use in a fantasy. So this is the thrill of the feat, and it was most spectacular and astonishing when there was the possibility of actual failure and injury. Um, so in 1909, the New York Clippers vaudeville man breathlessly recounts a performance in which Lionel Strongford's Tomb of Hercules Act with an automobile ful- filled with people um, went wrong. Quote, he was crushed to the ground just as the automobile reached the middle of the bridge and the settling of the bodies down on the supports at the other side was the only thing that saved him from being killed apparently, end quote. So the automobile by its very nature is a thing that is controlled by humans but here it overpowers the human and the stage fiction. In such moments we feel a uh, Frison, what states calls, quote, the shudder of the object's refusal to settle into the illusion, end quote. Um, but, as the Clipper reviewer notes, if it was too risky or too real, the act would fall flat. Um, so for Strongfort, who was nearly killed by the car, applause for his feet was naturally silenced because of the fear that he had been badly hurt. So in Strongman, the possibility of real danger was balanced with the need for mastery to secure continued employment. So many strongmen were actually fakers as opposed to lifters. There are numerous ways in which the Strongman tampered with objects to accomplish feats, including draining lead shot, for filling a barbell into holes in the floor, um, fastening the apparatus to the stage to make it impossible to lift when tested by audience members. Um, and through these manipulations, objects do become props. They are more truly the sense of the property of the performer. In the economy of the theater heavily dependent on novelty, mastering the objects through such fakery became essential to maintaining the fiction and fantasy of uh, late 19th and early 20th century strongman performance, which asserts that certain bodies, uh, certain male bodies, might ex- exceptionally escape the vicissitudes of a newly risky and precarious economy of speculative capital and financialization. So what does this have to do then with contemporary strength sports? Um, And just like some brief remarks to conclude. Strongman performance um, has become uh, a really kind of ubiquitous form of of training in contemporary fitness. So even in um, mainstream gyms, you might see like tires and and battle ropes, those those sorts of things. Those all kind of come from the history of strongman performance. Um, but in London, at least, um, Strongman is offered as a standalone mode of, of progressive training um, through classes in at least five locations. So there's dedicated venues City Strongman, Strongman Bootcamp, Genesis Gym, Commando Temple, and The Foundry, which has two locations. Um, CrossFit Strongman workshops are, are delivered in numerous CrossFit boxes across the world. Um, and so we might say that Strongman. With its almost endlessly arsenal of creatively misappropriate things, has become a kind of participatory theater. With the audience stepping into the role of the strongman. So while the spectacle of strongman in the Victorian and Edwardian music hall represented an ideology of its accelerated 20th century industrial capitalism, which sought to transform matter into a system of things, um, equipment or tools, um, Contemporary strongman, as participatory practice, courts failure, as failure is the thing that builds strength. So in seeking to train with objects like stones, tires, and yokes, participants in the strongman training are attempted to master the audience, but also to experience the feeling of the willful object, the object that resists our use, and its place in a network of affordances that is determined exclusively by human action. So in this way, strongman training does not reject the possibility of human mastery, but embodies anxiety over it, related to a historical shift to a globalized post-industrial capitalism in which material labor has not been replaced, but rather hidden in the margins of the world. So I think this um, ambiguity between mastery and the actual feeling of, um, of the potential, being cru- potential failure and being crushed by a thing, is what prompts these difficult feelings. So difficult feelings in two senses. The actual feeling of the object is difficult. It's a thing that is difficult. It's difficult to do, to lift. Um, But that difficulty, when mastered, I think prompts another set of complex feelings that that intersect in a really interesting way with issues of masculinity and capitalism. Um, So I look forward to discussing that in the questions. Thank you very much.
1: Those. I have to say that for a while there, somebody had left their their um, jumper in the gym locker that I always use, and I was like, "That's my locker," <laughs> and I. But I didn't want to leave it, remove it, because every day I was like, "Well, maybe they're here somewhere, and they didn't lock it." But then finally, I said, "I I took it out." So I, <laughs> understand, I understand those feelings of propriety. Okay. Um, Thank you Fenton for this invitation and I'm, I'm really gonna try to talk a little bit about some experiences I've had dealing with um, difficult or uncomfortable feelings here and there. Um, I'm just gonna go ahead and start just by saying that I'm gonna do this in three recollections that lead me to these different topics. So, recollection one, being uncomfortable. So I want to start with a recollection from the closing session of the 2014 ASTR conference, that's the American Society for Theater Research. The theme of the conference was What Performs? Which followed the year before's theme of the post thematic, in which I presented material about animal robotic interfaces, including a robotic cow tongue art piece, which we'll come back to. So these themes, I think, set the stage for the closing State of the Profession session called Materialisms and Humanisms, New, Old, and Other. It was chaired by some fantastic scholars, Robin Bernstein, who um, Roderick just mentioned, and Yuri McMillan, and included equally impressive panelists paired around themes such as theater and dance studies, Latino-Latina theater, indigenous identities, and transracial performance. So they were, each one of those topics had two people discussing it. It was a pretty exciting panel, actually. But it opened with what seemed to be a kind of a comment on the themes of the past, of that and the, the conference prior to it. And it felt like a bit of a critique of the post-human. Right? So they, went, they started this session with a critique of the post-human as being kind of negligent of the human, and I remember a comment that was something like, quote, how can the field be spending so much time focusing on the non-human when there are still so many problems dealing with the human, end quote, and it was probably more articulate than that, actually. And I I use the word feel and seems because as I sat there uh, after giving a plenary the year before about the non-human, which is a subfield I think that is still very small, actually, um, I began to feel really uncomfortable. Here was a panel of distinguished scholars and friends who I respect tremendously, basically to my mind at the time, saying that the things I was interested in really have little value in the face of larger issues. And I mention this here because at the moment, I was filled with a bit of burning anxiety. I wanted to get up and say, but you're misrepresenting the excellent work that's been done around post-humanism, the non-human, environmental issues. And I wanted to say, no, this is a misreading of the post-human um, the not, because I was thinking this is more like what you're talking about is more like the transhuman. And this is a misreading of the post-human, especially as it relates to the environment and the lives that, um, that surround and support the human. And I, and I was reading the post-human as a critique of post-human-centric behavior and scholarship. But I really just sat there. Because, of course, these folks had many excellent things to say about people, bodies, and, of course, there is still much to do in those areas. Nevertheless, it made me feel awful and frustrated and sidelined, even if this was only in my mind. Because somebody was saying about that moment, I think, Emma, where you feel like you've, you've gotten it wrong. I, f- I had that feeling at that moment. But for the past 20 years, and literally the past 20 years, I looked back and I gave my first conference as a PhD student in 1997, I've been writing about and invested in some form of the non-human, beginning with forms of technologies on stage which um, led me to uh, write cyborg theater, which is a theorization of how media, and and media integrates with the body on stage to, to, as I theorize, come up with a kind of cyborg subjectivity, to a shift in focus toward a different non-human other from the technological to the form of the animal, which has led to my current research and this co-edited volume, um, Performing Animality. Although my research has all emerged from questions of the body, my training is initially as an actor and a director with a physical theater practice, my interests in the non-human have been in relation to the human, often through a feminist blend and in performance. But this has not always been, as this example shows, easy or popular to mine. So as I wrote in the preface of Cyborg Theater, quote, bodily associations with 20th and 21st first century technologies in a time called post-human have now made the idea of the cyborg a reality. But in 1976, I'll get back to that, the concept was foremost still a fiction. Bionics then stood in for possibilities that have now in many ways become reality. Through physical exercise, reproductive or plastic surgery, and medical advances in prosthetics and artificial body parts, The notion of building or augmenting the body has radically changed ideas about aging, sexuality, health, and beauty. I'd rather be a cyborg than a goddess, professed Donna Haraway. So this shift from goddess to cyborg was very important to me at the time, and Haraway's writing, which was complex but catchy, funny but also dense, analytical and narrative, appealed to me as a young writer. And that phrase, I'd rather be a cyborg than a goddess, um, captured a lot about shifts in feminist thinking at the time, but also reminded me that uncomfortable feelings and statements had been the mainstay of feminist writing for decades as they struggled to introduce new languages to subvert patriarchal traditions. So how to write about these subjects, how to find a way to analyze them and also bring them to life for the reader. Which brings me to recollection number two on language. So one of the things I spent a lot of time on, all right, maybe not a lot of time, but you know, it felt like a lot of time when contemplating my man completing my manuscript was how to transcribe a particular sound. I wanted to start my book the cy- Cyborg Theater with an example many people might know, and besides, I loved bionic women growing up. So I started with a passage about her. But there was something about the sound, you know which sound I mean? There's something about the sound she made when leaping or using her bionics that created an embodied memory of watching that I wanted to capture. So I tried and tried to figure out how it would look on paper. I was listening to it again in the past couple days, I don't have a video here, but um, I think I failed actually, but listening to it, to it again now, but I finally came up with the opening passage. I can still hear the sound, that metallic <laughs> when the bionic woman, Jamie Summers, performed her slow motion, super strength, jumps, leaps, and kicks. The original bionic woman, a 1976 seventy-six spin-off of The Six Million Dollar Man, was a fusion of body and technology, a cyborg. So there was something about needing to represent this technology orally, to materialize it, that epitomizes a larger conundrum that I've had across my research. It's how to balance writing analytically about a topic, in this case, trying to argue at first for technologies as subjects on stage, and then for animals, subjects who can't speak for themselves, with the growing uh, um, interest and work around affect and writing affectively. I began to feel that a lot of the people I was drawing on to support my research on the non-human, and and also in technologies, wrote beautifully and philosophically, performatively, but also politically ineffectively. And this became an underlying frustration for me. But these writers let their words resound, and I love this writing. So let's just look at a few examples of quotes that I used to, to, I think, start different essays. This is the first one um, from my essay, Reflective Viewing. Gaze with all your eyes at this landscape, zebrine, tigroid, iridescent, shimmering, embroidered, distressed, lashed, lacunar, spotted like an ocelot, colorfully patterned, torn up, knotted together with overlapping threads, worn fringe everywhere, unexpected, miserable, glorious, so magnificent it takes your breath away and sets your heart beating. By Michelle Serres. Or this one. (laughs) Stories are like searchlights and spotlights. They brighten up parts of the stage while leaving the rest in darkness. Were they to illuminate the whole of the stage evenly, they would not really be of use. Their task, after all, is to cure the stage, making it ready for the viewer's visual and intellectual consumption, to create a picture one can absorb, comprehend, and retain out of the anarchy of blots and stains one can neither take in nor make sense of, by Bauman. This was a, an essay I was writing about, the ethics of the wasting body of Terry Schiavo, a woman um, in, uh, on a, on a, a veg- in a vegetative state, and pigs in art performances. So I'm looking for language to help me fuse these things. And finally, the third example, stop time. That dying animal which enacts its own future wants to abolish time. It releases itself to its absence in something like a deja vu. The displacement is unnerving. You are not where you were. It is like the recollection of a previous existence. The neuromental aspects of theater are elusive by the brilliant Herbert Blau. So this last quote is the preface of an essay on taxidermied animals the dead elephant of the room of my title, which began because I was so uncomfortable with the display of these dog heads at the Horniman Museum in South London, and it prompted me to learn more and to begin to do research and to figure out how to write about this discomfort and find an analytical argument about taxidermied animals in performance, which is in the Performing Animality book. In the essay, I argue through several case studies of taxidermied animals in performance contexts for their ability as an active and critical tool for looking at the past and the future. I show they have a po- how they have a possibility to, following uh, Rebecca Schneider's brilliant work on reenactment, foster an inter-inanimation between humans and animals. Like much of my recent work, I'm positioning animals, technologies, and humans in a triangular relationship to argue for the possibility of a becoming animate, which challenges the often unseen relationship between these elements to redirect thinking about their and all of our futures. So from these examples, you can see that I am really attracted to writing that is felt in the body that can approximate even a minute version of that chills down your spine feeling that you get in theater when you see an arresting image or hear a certain combination of sound and embodiment through song. It's about creating a balance, a mode of speaking with these subjects that enlivens them on a page, but also about being in productive tension with an academic analytical writing so that I can make an argument to, like perhaps a scientist, show my findings. So I went so far as to try to articulate this in a theater journal essay I wrote called Animal Ontologies and Media Representations, Robotics, Puppets, and the Reel of War Horse, where I wrote, I tried to sort to, to of figure out what I, was say, what I was feeling, and I said, following scholars such as Deleuze and Guattari, my work has often relied on affective statements, It has relied on the power of art, performance, images, encounters, senses, smells to seize hold of ideas and our imagination and rethink these crucial relationships with non-human others. As a possible way of seeing beyond the animal as, as strictly metaphor or symbol, ideas of affect may better express ideas of relations between animal and human lives. Brian Misumi translates Deleuze and Guattari's use of the term affect or affection as, quote, a pre-personal intensity corresponding to the passage from one experiential state of the body to another, a state considered as an encounter between the affected body and a second affecting body, end quote, implying at least a relational encounter that can be applied to humans and animals. However, what has been most compelling to me as I work increasingly in this growing field of animal studies are the concrete and material realities of animals. When I find myself in conversation with anthrozoologists or zookeepers, animal rights activists, lab technicians, and bioethicists, among others, the animal in question are living, breathing creatures. In these encounters, a turn to languages of affect can leave me with a sense of frustration. That was from the essay. So I'm arguing for a delicate balance. These subjects, in order to be made manifest in the work that we do, challenge us to represent them in all their complexity and at the same time trying to create some kind of an impact on readers. And this takes me to my final final recollection on ethics. Sitting in a small room at the, I think, 2012 PSI conference, Performance Studies International Conference in Leeds, Presenting papers on a panel called Rendering the Animal Technologies of Animal Representation with my then PhD student Austin McQuinn and Deke Weaver, who's the director and author of the pretty monumental um, project called The Unreliable Bestiary. And it was chaired by Lord Orozco, who is the, my, my collaborator on performing animality. We finished our papers and we turned to the audience. The first person um, with an urgent hand up looked very clearly at our shoes mm-hmm. and then asked a question that went something like, um, is it ethical for you to discuss these projects that use animals in performance since they have no agency in these acts? Mm-hmm. And this connects me back with what, some of what Emma was talking about earlier um, about writing about moss, and so, you know, where do we place ourselves in these conversations? Well, Lourdes and I exchanged a secret glance, because we had heard many variations of this question before, usually followed by an assessment of our footwear. As I have argued, the branches of animal studies more influenced by issues of animal ethics and rights are perhaps correct in insisting on greater advocacy than what I often can do in writing about art and performance or as Nicole Shukin argues in Animal Capital, rendering life in biopolitical times, more, quote, possible openings for protest, end quote. So this is something that I'm always grappling with. How, do, how does my work have any impact um, in relation to the, you know, so to try to, to work on something that has uh, agency within the kind of writing that I do? So while much of my theorizing is based on notions of affect, on unpicking and analyzing moments of interconnectedness between animals, humans, and technologies, I also try to consider the material realities and questions drawn from these bodies. So, I will admit, showing... Um, oh, wait, did I... Oh, I didn't give you the dog heads. Sorry, because I'm looking at it and it's not on here. So this was, these were the dog heads at the Horniman Museum, um, which I just... I don't know, like... I saw it, they just gave, it was just a bizarre, effective moment when I stood in front of these, and I thought, I have to figure this out. Actually, I talked to the curator um, at one point, and they said that there are children who they have to bring into the back room, and it's, they, they've made up some story how the, the heads, the animal bodies are behind the wall, because it disturbs children, <laughs> this particular exhibit. Anyway, so the video of the next image that I'm going to show... Has given me pause and created a lot of questions. And um, I'm just going to warn you: I'm, I'm only showing the um, the video, and this connects really, I think, a lot to what Claire was talking about about how how graphic do we want to be? You know, where do we position the subjects of our research? Um, but uh, this is a ca- these are cow tongues, robotic cow tongues. They're actual cow tongues um, affixed to robotic. Um, pieces in an art installation and uh, so if you're really squeamish um, you can look away so i admit that showing videos of this image um, has made me think very hard about the agency of animals and parts of animals and the artists and, and performances that i write about engage with if the artist obtains these animal parts from a butcher shop that are meant to be eaten? Does this make a difference? Do I have to foreground that? Does it matter if the artist is a vegetarian? Does it matter if I'm a vegetarian? And what about the responsibility of writing about the artwork? Do I always have to have a responsibility to write on the side of these subjects who cannot speak for themselves? And what of the interaction between humans, technologies, and animals? Am I exploiting them? or reifying this, this, um, these relationships by writing about them? Or is my work grounded enough in critique and knowledge um, to make people think differently? I'd like to believe it was this last one, but this is something that's always on my mind when I when I work with this kind of material. Um, I was really struck by the questions um, that were brought up in earlier by, about dignity and tact and um, I think there are big questions also about the difference between people and uh, working with animal subjects. And in this case, this is from a butcher shop which was intended to be eaten. Um, people eat cow tongues, So like, and, and yet the animal activists in the papers that I've given Um, really oppose this kind of representation. So these are questions that I'm constantly grappling with in the work that I'm doing about ethics and agency. And I'd like to think that the work that I'm trying to do with this does give the, the sense of animal and animality some agency through the analysis that I'm giving, but the reality is the animal's dead right so these are these are very kind of complicated questions i think and indeed this returns me to my first recollection that of lamenting the discussion of the non-human in the face of the ongoing struggles of the world and yet and, and even today in relationship to the work that claire was talking about about people torture victims right are there equivalences at all yet and perhaps like my wrestling over language of affect and how to achieve the appropriate and effective balance in order to have even a small amount of impact, I do believe that there's a critical need to attend to the non-human and to our relationship to it, whether it's in techno- through technologies, environmental questions or animality. Thank you. And now we'll. we'll go from there. Thank you so much. <laughs>